Megan McCain has entered the chat. Hello, 2024. This is our first episode of a brand new New Year. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season and New Year's. I am going to admit something to you, Miranda. I do not love Christmas and New Year's. Like I, I enjoy it, but I don't have this deep abiding love for it the way I do Halloween. And I'm actually happy to be back into routines. And I think when you have young kids like we do, my girls like had trouble sleeping. We went to a Airbnb in West Virginia and they had trouble sleeping because it was like a new environment and all the things. And you like don't have your bottles and you don't have whatever. And I think when you have young kids, it's just like there's not really a vacation. You're just like taking care of kids in different locations. <laughs> um, not that I didn't enjoy the time off, but I'm happy to be back. What about you? Yeah, I'm happy to be back in routine. My older daughter still has another week off of school. And so I'm just like, I'm so ready for her to get back into her like schedule and routine. And not that I don't love sleeping in and all of that because my kids are sleepers, but it's the same. It's like, I love Christmas. I love New Year's, but it's so much work just for Honestly, it's like 35 minutes of like the culmination of all of it. You know what I mean? I know. It's and then like- on New Year, I didn't do anything. We stayed at home and had a shrimp party, which is exactly what it sounds like. We just had a lot of shrimp and then got uh, a <laughs> bottle of champagne. That I didn't drink any of it. And then I was in bed by like, I don't know, 10, 30, 11. And I woke up to hearing fireworks. So I am. I, I don't know. But then I read it was in to not go out this year. So what did you do for New Year's? Uh, well, so we did my family's, like with my side of the family, we did Christmas on New Year's Eve. So we went over there, my parents' house, and we did presents and all of that stuff. But we were home by like seven o'clock. And my husband was like falling asleep on the couch by 10. So it was very, very tame and calm and relaxing, which was nice. But we did make it till midnight. We watched, you know, Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper, and they got to drink again this year. So that was nice. And, um, <laughs> It was a good time. And then everybody just went straight to bed. Mm-hmm. Like by 12.07, everybody was just knocked out. Mm-hmm. So it was it was very nice and chill. And now we're going on to our very first show. There's a lot. I think also it's exciting right now, even though in D.C. apparently it is like a, a dead zone right now. When I had a, the easiest time driving in today because apparently the Senate and Congress are still out of session. So I guess it doesn't feel like people are are coming back to life but we have the new hampshire primary in the iowa caucus like less than two weeks away so things are gearing up very quickly we're gonna have a lot to talk about a lot to go over i have to tell you i have this permeating sort of undertone of static anxiety about it being biden and trump again because it just feels very inevitable uh we do have our wonderful first guests of the new year emily eakins and Kristen soltis anderson who are both pollsters and uh emily is the vice president and director of polling for the cato institute and Kristen Soldis Anderson really needs no introduction. She's a very famous pollster uh, and CNN contributor. But I am very excited to talk to them to maybe give everybody a little hope that something could happen. But I just feel like we have these two octogenarian failures that are going to be sat in front of us. And I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. How, how, other than that, Happy New Year. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get excited. Yeah. yeah. So that's our first one of the year. And then we have our old friend uh, coming on today, C. Robert Cargill. I call him Cargill. Everybody calls him Cargill. I know you're putting your hand on your heart. He's one of our favorites. Very old friend of yours and mine and our old show and this show. And he's uh, he was always he was a 
a TV and movie reviewer for, if you guys want to go way back to this, for Ain't It Cool News, which I don't even know if that exists anymore, uh, which is like a total time warp into like internet, like history. And then he is now in a wildly successful screenwriter and producer. Like like Doctor Strange, he uh, wrote that movie Black Phone, Sinister, the Sinister stories. He has a bunch of very uh, popular books and anthologies. He's like wildly successful now, which is amazing. We love him and he's taking time out to uh, talk to us. And I do believe he's in the middle of doing a uh, Black Phone sequel. Um, and he is a frequent collaborator with Ethan Hawke, which I actually had the pleasure of meeting Ethan Hawke with Cargill uh, in Austin at the Sinister premiere. And they are all just absolutely lovely people and it's great for a show back. So that's what we're doing today. I'm happy to be back. I don't love Christmas. I think Halloween's still my holiday. And yeah, I, I also am not that I, I was very like trepidatious about 2024 because I feel like since 2020, we've all had like the rug pulled under us about New Year's and new times being to be excited about the new year and i'm just like sort of white knuckling 2024 so far because it's like you know we all want to jump in the deep end of the pool and Mm -hmm. after 2019 everyone was like yeah 2020 this is so exciting roaring 20s and then we all got like you know boned so i think everyone's just like okay now let's just dip our toes (laughs) yes maybe i don't want to jump in anymore because last (laughs) time i did that i got you know covid and this and that and all and of the terribleness. FYI, you are sick. We need. I think we need to tell people that because oh, your voice yeah. sounds a little weird. I'm very sorry you're sick. You're not exactly sure what you have. And I still actually weirdly, bizarrely have a cough. Uh, and not to like keep making this about viruses, but everybody's been sick in and out. So if our voices sound a little weird, that's also what's happening. But wishing you best of health. It's impossible to get healthy when you have small kids too. But I'm so happy to see you. And I'm happy to be continuing to do this again. I'm happy to see I talk to you every day. I do talk to you off, every day. But I, I still miss you and I'm, I'm yes. glad we're back. I'm happy to see your face. Um, yeah. Two other final things that we will, I promise, get into. If We're going to try and dip into it a little bit on this show, but we don't really have the, quite the right guests for this. I want to talk about Epstein's flight list, which may or may not be, was supposed to be released this week. And I now was told that it will be released by the 22nd because uh, there is someone's name on the list. They're worried about their physical safety. I mean, no shit, Sherlock. You're probably going to be exposed to be some kind of pedophile. I would judge someone on the Epstein flight list. I hope it comes out. I, for one, think we are supposed to have freedom of information. I would like to know who the celebrity pedophiles are and politician pedophiles are. I would really love to alleged. Don't sue me. But that's what people think you are because that's what the list isn't out yet. So you could say it, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, they're alleged. It's a bad thing to be on that list. I don't know if they're like full blown pedophiles, but like you were doing disgusting things. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein went to prison and then killed himself or did he? Maybe. Maybe or maybe. We don't know. Uh, the maybe. other thing is there was an absolute blockbuster last episode of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City last night. Uh, Yumi and Kara were texting about it. Uh, it was an incredible episode. I, I have to admit I had a little bit of tip off of what was happening, so I wasn't as shocked as everybody else. I think we should try and have our friend Carlos King on very soon to go over it. I can't explain it because it's just too crazy. So I promise you, if we don't talk about those things today, we will be next week and in the next few episodes. I promise because I'm very, that's what's blown up on my chats right now too. (laughs) Gotta talk about those chats. Gotta talk about chats. All right, Miranda, I'm very happy to see you. Happy New Year to you all. And with that, let's enter the chat. Hello, hello. 
Hello, welcome back to our very first episode of 2024. And I am genuinely so excited to have these two incredible powerhouse women on. We have uh, Kristen Soltis Anderson, who I said, you guys really don't really need an introduction. I feel like everybody in politics who follows politics knows who you guys are, but I will still say Kristen Soltis Anderson is a very famous pollster and a CNN contributor. You can find her on K Soltis Anderson on X and Instagram. And then Emily Eakins, who is the vice president and director of polling for the Cato Institute. And you can find her at Emily Eakins on X, Twitter, X, Twitter, X, so dumb, uh, <laughs> Twitter. But thank you guys so much for coming on. Like I said, you both are such legends in politics. So it's really such a pleasure to have you both on this morning. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yes. thanks for having us. So I just want to start out. We are going to do like get into what we can expect going fresh into the new year with all the election news coming up. But I I would be remiss if I didn't ask because this podcast is based off of what everyone's talking about on my text chain chats. Hence, Megan McCain has entered the chat. Um, and everyone's talking about uh, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, stepping down, resigning. For anyone that's following the story, there's a lot of controversy about the now infamous, I think, the most streamed and watched congressional hearing of all time where she and two other presidents of MIT and Penn refused to basically say that anti-Semitism wasn't allowed on campus and that it was, I think, context matters and obviously no one cared. And then it also came out allegations of her plagiarizing, I guess, pretty egregiously. What do you make of her of her stepping down? And I guess uh, we can start with you, Kristen. Well, it feels like the timing of the stepping down in some ways creates the worst of both worlds for Harvard. On the one hand, if if she had very quickly, you know, after that kind of disastrous congressional testimony, stepped down and just said, hey, you know, now's not the time. If Harvard had either pushed her out or she had stepped aside then, she may have actually been able to avoid all of the continuing controversy that has kept going in the weeks and weeks since then. Because now you have both those who are upset that she has sort of been pushed out, resigned, however you want to define it, who think that this is being driven, you know, it's being driven by the far right, it's unfair, etc. They're upset. But you still also, it, it is not as though conservatives love Harvard University and think, oh, great, everything's fine. Higher education's wonderful, problem solved. So you wind up in this situation where like, now everybody just kind of is mad at you. And this is, to me, a really, really, really strong example of what happens when you have the, no offense to anybody listening who's a lawyer, but like the lawyers in charge, like that was my big takeaway from the testimony that really set this all off was that instead of answering questions in the way that you know to be right, or frankly, let's just, even if you're being cynical, a way that is most advantageous for you from a PR perspective, that is not always going to be the right answer that's going to keep you out of legal jeopardy. And it sounds like a lot of this preparation was really just legalese, avoid getting into trouble. And that actually is exactly what led to this trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. That's such a good point, Kristen, because that was my reaction too, is that when you saw the three presidents, uh, president of University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and Harvard, all having almost the same answer to the question that um, Congresswoman um, Elise Stefanik had asked, which is, is it against your policy to call for the genocide of Jewish people? And they couldn't say, yes, that's against our policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one thing for them to say, 
people have different opinions about the state of, you know, the, the, the policy issues surrounding Israel and Palestine, and we allow that kind of debate to occur. But that wasn't the question, right? And so the fact that they weren't, that they weren't able to just give a very concrete, obvious answer that anyone would give, I think really speaks to your point about them doing what the lawyers probably advised them to do, but then it didn't go well. And I think to bring this actually to polling, if you've looked at polling data over the past decade, confidence in universities has plummeted. So if you go like 10 years ago, Americans didn't have a lot of confidence in the media. You know, there were certain areas where people were like, I don't really trust it, or it was very polarized, but people trust the military, they trust universities and scientists. And if you look over the past decade, support for um, confidence in universities just plummeted. And I feel like we just reached the nadir with what happened with these testimonies. And then in addition to that, I do think that the reason everything happened with um, the president of Harvard were um, because of her testimony, people went and looked at her academic record and found that she did not properly um, cite and attribute passages in her work where so you know what she did essentially is that she took lines from other people's work and didn't you know put quotations around it and say this came from this person's paper or book she failed to do that and people they did that because they had lost so much confidence in universities based on and and their testimony made it worse and then when they find out that she'd plagiarized this even further worsened people's perceptions of universities. So I'm very concerned about how universities come back from this. I don't really know how do they regain the trust of Americans. Well, I totally agree. And I think even for me, we all have children thinking about the albatross idea of where to send children to college right now. I honestly don't know what the hell I would do if I if my kid were 18 or 17 or whatever, because it does feel so overwhelming. And there's so many other things I now have to think about and you have to think about like holistically. Is this going to be a place where, you know, uh, Jewish people are not going to feel safe on a campus? I wouldn't feel comfortable sending my child to an environment like that. And among all the other things that are being taught in classrooms, and I feel like this has been such a weird watershed moment where all the kind of things that um, conservatives have been talking about for so long, all of a sudden, I just know, like, anecdotally in my life, I have, like, liberal friends being like, so maybe you were not being paranoid, and I should have been a little more respectful to some of the things you've been saying. I thought you were being, like, histrionic. I had one friend that was like, I always thought you were so histrionic on this, and maybe you were right. So that has been interesting, too, and I agree with you just from, like, a polling standpoint. I don't know what, I mean, you guys obviously know better than I do. I don't know where they go from here, because I wouldn't want to send my kid to Harvard right now. Well, and colleges and universities have had an issue that has been long brewing that has been driven by the rising cost of going to college paired with real questions raised almost, I mean, you have to go back to the, you know, the wake of the financial crisis when people, the millennial generation at least, began kind of questioning the, did I actually need a college degree in the first place? And I still think that there is a lot of data that says getting some kind of education beyond high school whether that is trade school, whether that is, it does not have to be a degree from Harvard, still really does bear a lot of of fruit, right? It has a lot of benefits. You should try to get some kind of education beyond high school if you can. But I think this idea that like the only way to succeed is to go to a Harvard, that is what I think in the last two or three years has been particularly undercut. Um, and I say as a proud state school grad, <laughs> go Gators. Like there there are institutions out there 
that can affordably provide really good education to young people that I don't think have the same kind of baggage that you see coming out of some of these private elite institutions that just have a, a whole lot of other stuff going on. And that is the one thing I will say, you know, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, to her credit, you know, she kind of set all this in motion, right, with the testimony that you talked about. But yesterday she put out a press release, you know, kind of spiking the football a little bit. And it said, like, this is the biggest scandal in the history of, you know, an American college or university. And I would say, like, you only need a passing familiarity with college athletics to know that that's yeah. not true. Like, the, it, But it, because it's Harvard, we we hold it up as this, like, this thing that like Harvard's supposed to be better than everything else. And this is now, you know, we, what we have seen over the last couple of years is a lot of institutions that were supposed to be the thing that was better than everything else may actually just not mm -hmm. be. We, I kind of jumped in uh, a little like head deep really fast because I didn't really get into like one of the reasons I wanted to have both of you on is because I actually love polling and I love pollsters. Um, I, I feel very cozy and comfortable around polling. I think it's just growing up around politics. I can actually remember uh, my dad's campaign manager, who I'm still very close with, um, uh, saying that to him, the new polling data that came out every week was like a black tar heroin hit. I hope you find that funny and not like <laughs> insensitive. I hope they do and that he needed his heroin hit every time. And I, I love polling and I, I always feel very defensive of pollsters because I think it's a very hard and very important job. And I think there is a lot of tea leaves that you can read about the future, particularly of American politics, which is very nuanced and complicated through polling. So I just want to ask you guys first and foremost, like why go into this industry? And what has changed since, again, like I think we're all around the same age, since you first started doing this and then wanted to continue on, especially in a time when people are like, you know, I think like Nate Silver is like not doing this anymore. He like is a professional gambler or something like because a lot of people have sort of given up on this industry. So I can jump in and take this one first. So I got into the polling business almost by happenstance. I had come to D.C. because I'd watched too much West Wing and all of that. Uh -huh. and I took a job working at the NRCC. Um, they put me in the finance department because I was there at a time in the election cycle when all the parties are doing is raising money. They're not like persuading voters and knocking on doors. They're just raising money. It turned out I hated campaign finance, but I was okay with a spreadsheet. Um, and all of the stuff that I wanted to do on communications and speech writing, and maybe I wanted to be a press secretary, it turned out that you could actually study communications through a kind of research lens. Like you didn't just have to say, this sounds nice to me. You could actually go and test. What do people think? Where are they at? Rather than just what sounds nice to me. So that's what I found so appealing about getting into the polling business. Now, back when I started this job, answering phones and updating spreadsheets at a polling firm in 2005, uh -huh. um, almost all of the polling we were doing was by random digit dialing, landline telephones, asking people to pick up and asking them 14 minutes worth of questions. And nowadays, that is almost 0% of, of what I do. Certainly, if I'm calling people on the phone, I'm probably not randomly dialing numbers. I mean, it's there are so many technological changes that have come about because the way people communicate with each other has advanced. So as technology has gotten further and further down the road, it is easier for me as a pollster to find you and it is easier for you as a voter to avoid me. Okay. <laughs> you have caller ID, you have, you know, cell phones that make it 
easier for me to reach you at the grocery store than it used to be, but easier for you to avoid me while you Uh were at the grocery store than before. So the technological changes have been big, along with declining response rates. And I'd love to hear Emily talk a little bit about what she's seen. But the other big problem we're facing is that in some ways, it's a miracle that polling still works as well as it does. You know, back in the 90s, 2000s even, you still had 20, 30% response rates. Now it's a miracle that the 2 to 3% of people who are taking surveys are as similar to the 97 to 98% who aren't. That it, That is what continues to make my job very challenging, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's still an exciting adventure every day. That's so interesting, Kristen. I love how we came to very similar places in DC, but from very different paths. And I just, I love your work. Definitely, I recommend following Kristen's um, polling work. Um, I come through kind of an academic path. So I went and got a PhD in political science mistakenly. I shouldn't have done it. It was a mistake. (laughs) Um, And I was in the middle of the program um, at UCLA when I realized, oh, this actually isn't like the best fit for my personality. I'm very extroverted. I like to be around people. And academia is a place, if you like to be alone and read all by yourself all day long, that is the place for you. Um, But for someone that's very extroverted, it was, it was, I realized it wasn't the right place. But something that really did catch my my interest was one of the primary methods that we use in academia, like at least in the social sciences, is surveys. Like, in order to study something, you can ask people about it and have rigorous empirical ways to measure things about the world. And I love statistics. And what I really liked was I don't want to know just what people think, but why they think what they do and really delving deep and understanding the why. And there's all these cool tools that you learn and statistics that you can apply to political settings. And so like a study I did right after the 2016 election was to to study Trump voters. Um, Something that had really bugged me a bit during the campaign is that people really wanted to assume that all people that voted for, say, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or voted for Donald Trump were all the same kind of person. And I think I think Kristen definitely sees this with her focus groups as well, is that there's many different reasons why people vote for a Republican or vote for a Democrat or how they think about politics. People aren't the same. And so using some cool statistical methods, we were able to find these different groupings of Trump supporters. And even that probably oversimplifies it a fair amount, but be able to see there's many different types of people that vote for a candidate. Some people are like really moderate on issues of health care and taxes and spending, but they're really worried about immigration and the border. So people like that voted for Trump. And then there are people that were completely opposite, that they don't really are not that worried about immigration, but they vote for Republicans because they feel like they'll keep, you know, spending down or try to keep the government a little bit more limited. And they voted for Trump, too. And so I love doing that kind of work to understand not just the what, but the why of politics and why we do what we do. I love polling because, and I love focus grouping because I really do feel like it's the best way to analyze the heart of Americans and the anger and the passion and the joy and what Americans actually really care about. And I I do want to delve into um, the upcoming Iowa caucus in New Hampshire primary. I can't believe the Iowa caucus is 11 days away. I, I just like it's fascinating and it's crazy at the same time. Or excuse me, it's eleven days away uh, when this comes out. Edit that, out. <laughs> uh, Miranda. Um, but I, a new USA Today Suffolk survey uh, just came out that shows President Biden trailing Trump. I find this just absolutely fascinating by five percentage points uh, with Hispanic voters, and that Hispanic leaders are very concerned. Uh, this 
quote from Domingo Garcia, who's the national president of the League of United Latin American Citizens, told Semaphore, quote, it's a matador red flag flying out there. The Hispanic vote is totally up for grabs. Trump's cutting the margins. And in battleground states like Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, that can be a big difference. Um, I just want to present to both of you how concerned about the Hispanic vote should President Biden be? And what is the reasoning that so many Hispanic voters are just going away from the Democratic Party and President Biden? So I think that Biden should be massively concerned about this because Democrats have built their majorities over the last decade or two on what Ron Brownstein has uh, at The Atlantic has called um, the coalition of the ascended, right? Younger voters, voters of color. And these are all groups that Biden has really been struggling with in polling as of late. This was supposed to be the recipe that was going to lead to these kind of permanent Democratic majorities, and it's not really panning out. My colleague Patrick Ruffini here at Echelon Insights, he just came out with a book, um, Party of the People, that really digs into this. The reason why you've begun to see this kind of populist coalition that is like multiracial and, you know, working class beginning to form that's kind of gravitating more to the right and is spoiling a lot of Democrats' hopes that they had this coalition of the future. The issues are are a couple. First, you have economic opportunity. I think Republicans are still generally better about talking about it. There are certain issues like health care where, you know, Latino voters, for instance, generally tend to prefer Democrats' messaging, but on things like entrepreneurship, on things like the value of hard work and opportunity and hope for the future, messaging from the right tends to just be a bit more resonant. But you also have some of these kind of law and order type issues, right? Crime, immigration, these are all issues where for a long time people said, well, Republicans, you're going to lose important swing voters on this because you sound too mean. But when people feel like crime is out of control, when they feel like the border is out of control, they're looking for someone who's going to talk tough on it and say, I want to fix this. And that has really been, I think, another big ingredient and in why you've seen this shift. Can I also present to you what another part of this poll that I found fascinating is that one in five black voters now say that they're open to voting for a third party candidate. I mean, that is just fascinating to me, given that black voters obviously overwhelmingly normally statistically vote don't Democrat. And does that mean that like RFK Jr. has a chance with the black voter? Like, what does that mean? I'm not so sure about RFK doing really well with a particular segment of voters like African-American voters. But I do think it's kind of what it's telling us is it's like a protest vote. Um, I think that survey found about 17 or 18 percent of Americans overall wanted to vote for a third party candidate. And I don't know what you thought, Kristen, but did you just think 2016, like when you saw that? I mean, and it's not that 16% or 18% vote for a third-party candidate. It's, um, I think in 2016, what was it, 3%, 1% that actually voted for Gary Johnson, the libertarian third-party candidate? Um, but what it tells you is that people are very dissatisfied with the two candidates that they have. You've got majorities of Americans who have unfavorable views of both of the likely candidates, um, Donald Trump on the Republican side, I'm assuming, and then Biden on the Democratic side. And when I saw that, again, I thought 2016, majorities of Americans had unfavorable views of Clinton and of Trump. And that's not normal. Like in 2012, people had positive views of the candidates. Um, so this mm-hmm. is we're just in a very unnormal, atypical territory where people don't like either of their options. So I think that's part of what we're reading in this data where we're seeing large shares of black voters, Hispanic voters saying that they're not that they're thinking about voting for Trump or thinking mm-hmm. about voting for a third party candidate. And I think a lot of it has to do with what Kristen just said, the economy, 
inflation. And people remember how well the economy was doing before the pandemic started. I think people realize that, you know, there's Trump, there's the pandemic, there's Biden, and they remember how well things were going in 2018 and 2019. Inflation was low and unemployment rates among African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans were the lowest they've been. And people remember that and they'd like to go back to that. And, mm-hmm. But not, not, not saying that they necessarily would vote for Trump because of that, but people remember that economy. And that, I think, is drawing a lot of people who otherwise might vote for Biden. They're reconsidering that. The big question whenever you have a high number of people saying they're going to vote third party is, are they actually going to turn out to the polls to begin with? There's two ways you can persuade people. You can persuade them between different options available to them on the ballot, but then you also have to persuade them to participate at all. And I think the bigger problem that Democrats might face is not so much that you're going to have a huge number of, say, black voters going out and actively voting for Donald Trump or a huge number of young voters going out and actively voting for Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee, but rather you need them to turn out at all in big numbers in order to get across the finish line if you're Democrats. And so there's a question that I've been asking in my surveys, which is less about do you like Trump? Do you like Biden? We know that they both have very high unfavorables, particularly among voters of color, young voters, et cetera. But I ask a question where I say, which of the following do you agree with more? That whether Trump or Biden wins would make a difference to me personally, or whether Trump or Biden wins would really not make a difference to me personally. And we find that in general, about eight in 10 voters say, yes, actually, you know, who wins does make a difference to me personally. But that is much higher among white voters than it is among black or Latino voters. And it's much higher among older voters than it is among younger voters. There is a very large portion um, in my surveys, not a majority, but, you know, about a third of black voters who do not say, yep, you know what? It makes a difference to me whether Trump or Biden wins. And I think if that contrast seems like, well, it's it's two bad options. It's just more of the same. I'm not interested in turning out. That, to me, is the bigger threat to the Democratic coalition. It's just that their base not turning out because of a lack of enthusiasm. Yeah, and that they just think, look, whether Biden or Trump wins, neither of them is going to help me. Neither of them is going to do anything to make my life better. So why even bother? That that kind of sense of frustration leading to apathy and throwing your hands up, like that, to me, is what I think is the the big blinking alarm sign for Democrats right now. I always feel like I'm kind of like a perfect like data point person to use in the sense that like, I guess I'm like a suburban mom and I hate both. Can- I mean, hate is strong where I really, well, hate is fine. I actually hate both candidates. Sorry. Um, and I would not vote, be comfortable voting for Trump or Biden. So I guess, uh, and again, we're making the great assumption that they're both going to be the nominees. And I would just literally vote for like almost anything over this because I find both of it just so on so many different levels depressing and not good for the country in a lot of different ways. So I was trying to hold out sort of like siren song hope of some black swan event that maybe Nikki Haley or DeSantis could pull it off. Obviously, I'm a Republican. I was extremely disappointed and confused by Nikki Haley's uh, Civil War answer. And not so much it wasn't it was a terrible answer. And for people that missed it, she was asked what started the Civil War. And she gave this very long, convoluted answer and didn't just simply say slavery, which I think a college student stoned out of his brain at a frat party would have just said slavery. I don't understand 
understand. Again, you want to talk about like lawyering things out. I think sometimes people are like strategist out. Like someone told her that like, hey, Southern voters don't want to be reminded of the Civil War. And that's why she answered that. And it really made me second guess whether or not she's like up to the job. As weird as that sounds. And then obviously DeSantis, there's like, I don't know what's going on with him. From the data and polling you've seen, is there any hope of either of these candidates in any way possibly winning and becoming the nominee of the party? I think it's pretty challenging. Emily, I'm interested in what you think. Well, I'm laughing because both of us made the same face. Yeah, I was like, you're both like making this cringy face. I don't want to like expose you, but you were both like, look like you were like, you know, grossed out. (laughs) It was a terrible answer. It was confusing. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm curious to hear Kristen's answer too, but I don't know how this goes any differently than Trump being the nominee without some sort of bizarre third, you know, event that happens. But right now, um, it's pretty. It's been pretty consistent where Trump is, you know, between you know forty, sixty percent, depending on the state that we're looking at. Um, in some states, Haley is surpassed DeSantis, but in many states, it's DeSantis that's kind of in second place. So it's really like who's running for second place rather than who's running for first. That's what it feels like. I believe it is overwhelmingly likely that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. So with that on the table, I'm going to game out for you what I I have been jokingly calling this like the trench run from Star Wars A New Hope. Like when you're trying to blow up the Death Star and you have to go through the trench and you have to like get everything exactly right. You have to drop the bomb like right in the Uh exhaustment. What does that look like for Nikki Haley? Because I I think she's likely that she's going to win in Iowa. But I think if she gets a reasonably strong second and a pretty good showing, does that suddenly mean she gets a second look from voters who are in New Hampshire who go, gosh, please don't let it be Donald Trump. And New Hampshire is a very interesting, totally different kind of, of state. Megan, I was just on... Mike Murphy's podcast very recently. And I I asked him, I said, you've won in New Hampshire, you know, and he was talking about how it is the kind of place where voters really are just, they're just different. And they are, you you have a different electorate because you have so many independents who participate. The problem Nikki Haley is going to run into is even if she comes out of Iowa with some momentum, she's in second place, is one, if DeSantis drops out, more of his voters, I think, go to Trump than to her. So that doesn't necessarily, like, the math actually doesn't get better. But if she still nevertheless has this good momentum, does she get, is, is there suddenly more interest in the race? Do more of those independents show up? If she can win in New Hampshire, and I think she has to win in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and I think that means Chris Christie has to drop out before then, too. Like, that's the other domino that has to fall in order for her to be able to do this. Let's say she wins in New Hampshire. Then you're going to South Carolina. And that is where I have been joking, the empire strikes back. Uh That is where suddenly Trump doesn't just like play footsie and call her bird brain. Like, I actually believe the full force of the Trump Death Star gets turned on her at that point. It's her home state. And so that's the only thing where I go, does that make this different, right? Does that make this play out where maybe she does have some more goodwill from voters in that state who do go, oh, let's move on. Let's do things differently. Um, but gosh, I, I don't want to give that path and say like, oh, that's what I think is going to happen. That's the best case scenario for Nikki Haley. And I still think it's very unlikely. That's the ideal situation for a Nikki Haley campaign, which isn't necessarily the the one that you think is going to happen the most. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Do you think it's surprising 
that in Nikki Haley's home state, Trump is still beating her, is still winning. Like, would you have expected that maybe she would have a different showing there? No, because I just think Donald Trump is such a, he still retains such a strong hold on particularly the type of very conservative Republican that you just find a lot more of in South Carolina. So it doesn't surprise me as much. And again, she was also governor there quite some time ago. I mean, I feel like she was not governor that long ago. And then you actually think about it. And you're like, wait a minute. Hang on. It's It's been like at least eight years since. Oh, uh, hang on. Well, and then she was ambassador. You know, a lot of time has passed since she was governor there. So, yeah, I do think it's a uh, karmically you cannot be president if you haven't won your home state and you can't pull off your home state. I think that's a very I mean, maybe someone has done it at some point that I'm unaware of in American history. But that tends to be like sort of one of those old adages that if you can't even deliver your home state, like what's your point? So and I'm not trying to be so hard on Nikki Haley because I really like this sounds terrible and I hope, I'm sure you've heard much worse things in your focus grouping, but I still have this idealistic part of me that wants like magic with my candidates and she's just not a, not the rock star that I was hoping. And again, there's something about that civil war answer. It's not just that her answer sucked so bad. It's that you have to be so much better than Trump on every level. And it, to me, it was like an indicator that she's still very flawed and like wasn't necessarily at the level that she could be. That being said, if she were the nominee, I'd happily vote for her. The end. But I don't know. We'll see. I want to ask you guys, the Biden strategy right now is apparently, if it is Biden and Trump, to keep connecting President Trump to Hitler and to keep sending surrogates, which like happened on ABC News over the weekend. John Carl did an interview with three women who used to work for President Trump, and they all were saying that he's going to end democracy and that he like basically like human life as we know it is going to end if President Trump is elected. I never understand that messaging because it never works. Why are they doubling down on something that like, as you pointed out, voters of color, young people, they're very concerned about the economy. They're very concerned about crime. Why is that the strategy that they're going forth with? I think the reason why they're going with that strategy, and I I wrote about this in a piece that definitely like ruffled some feathers the in the New York Times, yeah. uh-huh. Times right after Christmas. Is it's that, great, by the way. Okay, Everyone should well, read it. It's well, fabulous. Tw- yeah. Thank you, Megan. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, in, so the, the, the main thesis of the piece is that in 2016, Trump ran as, I'm the chaos candidate. I'm the wrecking ball. And Hillary Clinton's message was, this guy's going to be chaos. He's going to be a wrecking ball. And voters said, great, that's fine. And he wound up winning just enough voters in just enough states. In 2020, Trump ran again as I'm going to keep being a wrecking ball. And by then, voters had said, no, thank you. Mm -mm. I'm I'm off this train. I want a president I don't have to think about. I want calm. I want normalcy. I want boring. Give me the guy in the basement. Joe Biden, you're it. And the problem is that Joe Biden has not delivered calm or normalcy. Now, we can have a long debate over whether that's Biden's fault or not or or what have you. But the reality is voters don't think that Biden has brought peace and stability to the world. They don't think that he has brought stability and growth to the economy. They don't think on issues like crime and immigration. He has been a president that has brought about order. And so it has meant that advantage he held over Trump on the question of who is chaos and who is order has been erased in the minds of lots of voters. And I think that whoever wins the debate of who's going to bring about more stability will win. Normally, you would say it's crazy to think that Donald Trump could possibly win in a matchup against anyone on the question of like who is going to bring about more stability. And yet 
here we have a ton of different data points that I mentioned in the piece of voters saying, yeah, I actually think that Trump might be the one to bring about more order, stability, predictability. It sounds crazy, but there's lots of data that shows voters are there. So I think what Democrats are trying to do is remind voters of not just how chaotic it felt when Trump was president, but also things like January 6th, right? That was when Trump's favorability was at its low point. That's when it, he was, even among Republican voters, a lot of them saying, mm, I think we're ready to move on. I'm not really a Trump person. They're trying to get everybody back in that mindset and go, see, last time this guy was in charge, this is what was going on. You don't want this again, right? But I still find that a lot of voters are looking back whether you want to argue it's through rose-colored glasses or not, and saying, I kind of think things felt less crazy then. And that's why I think Democrats are going to try so hard to say, no, 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 remember, this guy is not Mr. Stability. He is not a very stable genius. He is not going to bring about order. He is just going to tear down the institutions that are holding this all together at all in the first place. That's what I think they're strategically trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a really good point, and I agree with that framing of like stability versus chaos. Trump is a known quantity now. Before, he wasn't known. And people looking back to the economy, they remember things being pretty good. And so that's some stability. That offers core stability that perhaps they're looking for. The other thing that I think is really important that these polls really demonstrate is thinking about January 6th. Um, To Kristen's point, the polls did show that favorability and Trump, confidence in Trump, obviously plummeted right after January 6th, but he's back. And the key here is that January 6th was not the deal breaker that many people in D.C. and people in the media thought it was going to be. And to add a little pop culture here, I've just been, um, I just finished The Morning Show, which is a TV (laughs) show on Apple TV+. I kind of hate it, kind of love it. Obviously, I'm watching it. Um, But one thing that really struck me is there's this this, um, romance between two of the characters, and they think they're meant for each other, they're going to be together forever, and then they break up in this devastating breakup because one of them had a brother who protested at January 6th, and she didn't tell the authorities about it. And it's just such... That storyline, I just... It really reveals how people that the types of people that are writing tv shows working in media writing movies kind of that that class the political class the um the entertainment classes have are so insulated from how i think a lot of regular americans are thinking about this like that would just not it's not the deal breaker for most for many people that i think everyone in dc and new york thought it was going to be after january 6th and the and the evidence we have is looking at these polls showing the fact that he's even even in the polls shows that it's just not the deal breaker that people thought but here's the caveat perhaps people that pushed for booting trump off of social media did him a favor yeah because when he's not in the spotlight when he's not insulting people in a very public clear way on a a daily basis People, they can just focus on things like the economy. They're not focused on the chaotic aspects that Kristen was talking about. A lot of the chaos that people associate with Trump is more about, like, his words, like what he said. Not as much, you know, perhaps they're maybe not associating that as much with with policies. And so I think that is just really key is how does this change when the campaigns really get into full swing and he starts saying what he's going Mm -hmm. to be saying, if he gets back on social media – 
will this change how people frame and think about him? Does that actually revital? Does that yeah. bring back the memories of January sixth? And does they does that make him more the chaos candidate rather than the stability candidate? And this is not something that's going to be new this time around. I mean, we were talking eight years ago about how. I'm sure his advisors would love to be able to like take his phone from him and just try to run something approaching a normal campaign. And yet he is still himself and you can't change that. And so there is this interesting contrast between like, for instance, earlier this week, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas endorsed President Trump. You had a couple different congressional leaders all like this week decide to to take that leap. And his language is very much like when Donald Trump was president, America was safe, strong and prosperous, um, very much setting up that stability versus chaos message I just described. I think that Trump's campaign is going to try to drive that. But then you have Donald Trump on Christmas night oh. saying, go to hell, I rotten hell to my opponents. It's like, okay, that's, that's not the message <laughs> that I think your campaign probably would have preferred you run with. But he is who he is. He is definitely is who who he is. And I, I saw that too. And I was like, I'm always like, where's your family? Like, go enjoy yourself. God, get a, I know he doesn't drink, but I'm like, go have some like cake and chill out by the Christmas tree. I totally agree with that. I want to know how vulnerable do you think the age issue is? I know that they're around the same age, President Biden, President Trump. I think President Biden is 81. President Trump is like 78 or 79. It's not like he's like a spring chicken. But for some reason, President Biden is just coming across optically incredibly old. I found it very insulting when I saw um, the the White House spokeswoman, Karine Jean-Pierre, saying like, I have a really hard time keeping up with him. We just see his public schedules He's not doing anything publicly until 10 o'clock most days in the morning. I know that I just I felt uncomfortable watching him on Christmas Eve talking to Ryan Seacrest. I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable. Uh, and again, I, I have no problem with people aging. God willing, I'll get there myself. Um, but it, it definitely is an issue that concerns me because I would not like to have a president that, God forbid, would somehow not make it through his second administration. How much of an issue was his age with voters? I think it's a really big issue. Emily, I don't know what you, you think about this. Like there's, there was polling that was done on this last time around because Biden was also old in 2020. And back then when voters were asked how concerned they were about Biden's age and about Trump's age, concern was muted and was pretty even between the two of them. Like people thought they were both pretty old, but it wasn't even near the top of the list of things that were really alarming them about either candidate. Now, alarm about Joe Biden's age has rocketed. Well, alarm about Trump's age hasn't really changed much at all. And I think that it contributes to this chaos versus stability narrative, right? If you're voting for a president to be the bastion of stability, they need to be someone who is in the control room controlling things at mm -hmm. some degree. And if you think the control room is empty... What's more chaotic than that in some ways? And so I I think that Biden's age issue just further fuels this unhelpful dynamic to Democrats and really gives voters a lot of worries about what does the world look like if the U.S. president is not even close to 100 percent? And I think we see some of this perhaps reflected in polling data when you look at the age groups and who they're planning to vote for. Um, I don't know if this struck you, Kristen, but it, it stood out to me that, that Biden's doing disproportionately better um, with uh, among older voters than than other Democratic candidates, candidates have done so in the past. Um, and then Trump doing perhaps a, maybe a little bit better. That the, the gap has narrowed. In 2020, it was very much lopsided where young people were voting 
you know, far more for Democrats than Republicans. But the, but in the the latest polls, and I've been looking at multiple polls to make sure that's not just a glitch, but you do see a narrowing among younger Americans, younger voters, um, in that they're voting, they're a little bit more favorable to, to Trump than they were in the previous elections. And I think part of that has to do with what we're talking about right now, not just being aged, but also just, you know, concerned about his health. Mm-hmm. Um, my last final question for both of you. I know um, you both uh, participate in focus groups. I personally love focus groups in general on everything. I love watching focus groups. I could watch uh, one about like if people like ranch dressing or not, like that SNL sketch. What has been some of like, if you can answer this, like what is the vibe from so many voters? Like, is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it optimism? When you're talking to people and you're asking them questions about the future of America, because I feel, and again, this is just me anecdotally. Very disillusioned. It's that, you know, even for New Year, this year on New Year's, I was like, well, is 2024 going to be like a, you know, clusterfuck like the last three years of it? No offense, you know, and it's like it just it's been so chaotic since COVID and so chaotic politically that I don't feel as optimistic, which makes me sad because I consider myself like I used to be very optimistic about things. And there's something about the the like, I don't know, like the, just the the monotony and depression and darkness of politics that is that is definitely impacting my my psyche um do people you poll feel the same way i think that a lot of this like bread and butter issues are are really key here like i think we can't underestimate the role that gas prices and inflation and just how much people are spending on everyday things and how much that has risen and just you know dramatic how they've risen dramatically in a short period of time how that's affecting how people feel if you look at um at polls most people think we're stagnant or we're in a recession. And then the economists come up on TV and they're like, no, no, we're not in a recession. We promise. But it's like, but then how come everyone feels like things aren't going well? And I think just look at how much people are spending for gas. Look how much they're spending for just regular household items like milk and groceries. And look at what's going on with housing. Like, I just think that a lot of a lot of the political conversations, they'll acknowledge these things, but I think they haven't given the weight and the gravity that they should and how that is affecting voters. Because at the end of the day, for a lot of voters, it's about bread and butter issues and how they're going to vote. So I agree that the bread and butter issues are a huge driver of the kind of current anxiety and the the vibes are bad uh-huh. <laughs> that's that's, that's the vibes easiest off. way to describe the vibes are off <laughs> um but i also think that there is something even more kind of fundamental that is making people feel a little just hopeless and despondent and exhausted about politics and i think it is that nobody feels like there's a clear win for them or their side on the horizon. So there's a really interesting poll finding. The Pew Research Center has asked this question over the last couple of years. Do you think that in politics, your side has been on the winning side or the losing side on kind of the issues that matter to you? And there was a point in time where during the Trump presidency, Republicans did feel a little bit more like their side was kind of winning more than losing. But that has now flipped. And now Republicans by like an 81 to 17 margin think we are losing more often than we are winning. But this is mirrored on the Democratic side, where by a two to one margin, Democrats feel like their side is actually the one that is losing. So nobody feels like their own side or people like them are on the upswing or, hey, things are looking brighter for us or, hey, actually, we're starting to put a few points on the board. 
in politics. And I think that's what's leading to more polarization when people feel like they're under threat and under siege and it's the other side that's winning and people like me are losing. You excuse bad behavior on your side and so on and so forth. So I think it's driving our polarization. And I also think it's why you see so many people say, I feel like the country's headed in the wrong direction, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, just feeling like things are are off. Mm hmm. I'm glad it's not just me uh, that it's a I mean, I don't want everybody to feel sad, but I'm definitely glad I'm not alone in all of this. But I'm glad that you like focus groups so much. Because I love them. I really think in a world where the quantitative polling methods that Emily and I were talking about earlier are getting harder and harder and harder to do well, it would not surprise me that if we wind up pivoting back more toward this kind of very old school, very analog. <laughs> Let's just have conversations with people because if the ultimate point of polling is to be a good listener, yeah. having face-to-face -face conversations and one-on-one -on -one dialogue, like that's a great place to start. I'm going to give you guys a little insight into my private life and please do not judge this. I actually am a member of a, a newsletter group where you can sit in on their focus groups and and I do it. I like it's a, it's over Zoom and literally like it's like twice a month and I can't always do it twice a month because I have young kids, but I'll literally make my husband give them dinner and put them to bed so I can watch the focus. I really enjoy it. I don't know why. I find it fascinating when you put a group of like hardcore Trump supporters and hardcore Biden supporters in a room discussing. And like I recently saw a focus group where a woman I found a Kamala supporter. She's a, like a huge fan, loves her, thinks she's doing a great job. And I was like, that is like an incredible find in the wild. <laughs> like, I am fascinated by this woman. And she was like the 100% thing she should be president and loved her. And I, I just think because I too live in the Beltway, it's such a great way to see how real people are you know, thinking, what they're doing and, and their perspective on the country. And I also think it's so important that uh, people like me in particular – keep our finger on the pulse of what people are actually thinking and feeling versus getting, as you said, so insulated that you think January 6th is going to break you up from the love of your life. It's ridiculous. Uh, I don't believe that either. Is there anything else you guys want to end on? Just thank you so much for coming on. I can't emphasize enough what fans I am of both your work and the things that you do in politics and media are so important. I love watching both of you on TV. And like I said, you guys have both been, maybe I'm just getting older because I'm almost 40, but I feel like we've all been around a really long time. Now, <laughs> I know well, I, when I was saying before, I was like, oh, I got my first job in politics in 2005. And that used to be like a thing I would say that would make it sound like, oh, I, I'm I'm young. And now I'm like, oh, no, that was um, that was almost. Well, you were you were interns that were born around the time that we got. to. My favorite thing to do with interns, by the way, is the, I, I don't know if any of you all remember the um, do, do you remember Demon Sheep? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a long so, time ago. That is a right. throwback so, reference. Yes. Throwback reference. If you don't know what Demon Sheep is, Google it. Yeah. It was a California, I believe, Senate race yeah. ad. Um, that to me is my favorite thing to show to like young new people in politics. And you're <laughs> like, no, no, this is real. A real campaign did this but, during, during my career. Do you remember um, I Am Not a Witch? 
yeah, the I woman who, say that. Yeah. that's um, another Christine good O'Donnell one. from New Jersey. Christine O'Donnell. See, that's the other part about politics that I really love too is the, cause I recently also in like was talking to some young people about why I still love it so much. And I was like, because it's absurd because there are things like demon sheep and I am not a witch. Again, we're dating ourselves. Google both of these things that really happen. And there are people that do things that think it's actually going to resonate with voters. And it's like sometimes common sense completely leaves the building of, of rational thinking and People are getting paid literally millions of dollars to guide candidates to do things like demon sheep. And it's fascinating, (laughs) I think. Well, they do say, right, that Veep is one of the most realistic TV shows about politics. (laughs) And I do think some of the things that have happened in the past couple of years are so wild and zany that even the writers of Veep would say, no, this isn't realistic. We couldn't do this. (laughs) My favorite data point or anecdote that I heard was that the um, writers of the head writer of House of Cards said he could not write the Trump years because the audience would mutiny and say this is too ridiculous and too out of the realm of like rational thinking and what would happen anyway um thank you guys so much uh is there any place we can find you other than obviously on twitter at k soltis anderson and emily at emily eakins e-k-i-n-s also on i'm saying twitter i know it's x but whatever and instagram is there any other place we can find you any place you want people to look thank you so much for your time and expertise today truly it's just been such a pleasure to speak with both of you thank you so much for having us yeah thanks for having me. anything else you want to plug while you're here uh, if you would like, I have a Substack. Uh, I don't write there very, very often, but it's there's no paywall. Just subscribe. It's uh, kristensoltisanderson.substack.com. It's called Codebook. Come check it out. I will 100% do that. I will. I definitely will. And then you can check out. We have more polls coming out on free speech and technology, those types of issues coming out this spring. Um, and we publish that at the Cato Institute's website, so www.cato.org. Fabulous. Thank you guys so much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat. So the best part about doing this podcast and now we are gosh, like three, almost four months in, is being able to have all of my wonderful, highly talented, iconoclast friends on. And for those of you who are longtime fans from uh, the American Now days, you will remember uh, my friend C. Robert Cargill, Cargill that I and the rest of the world calls him, who is now a very famous screenwriter, uh, writer of Black Phone and Doctor Strange and the Sinister series. And his work has appeared recently in VHS 85 and his anthology book Haunted Reels. I mean, Cargill, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I adore you. You are a true genius. And I'm just so happy to see your face and hear your voice. Uh, it's good to see you. We, we've both been super busy and have, our paths have not crossed in a while. Uh, but no, I'm happy to be here. I mean, I was actually just thinking about it. Uh, this year, we'll have known each other 15 years. Okay, so I was trying to remember because I w- it's so funny because when I was getting ready this morning for – it's funny to prep for a friend, number one, like to, to go through your bios and whatever. You have a very beautiful Wikipedia page, by the way. I know it's not always accurate, but oh. – <laughs> I've not checked it, so – Cargill and I – just doesn't say anything nasty. No, it's all good, and it's accurate Like because I know you. It's like you come from a military family and all these things and you're right or whatever. Um, but when I first met you, you were writing for Ain't It Cool News. And you were a movie reviewer and now you make movies. And the first thing I wanted to start out with is a lot of people come to you on social media looking for advice on how to break into the industry and how to break into writing because obviously you're incredibly successful. Um, What is the number one thing you'd say to people that are struggling, that are trying to make it? 
um, because you have made, you know, you've been working in this industry for, I mean, what is it, 20 years? Uh, over that, yeah. Uh, going on 25, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's your first piece of advice you would give people? Uh, the, the, the first piece of advice when you're breaking in uh, is always that uh, the thing about the entertainment industry is it's like a big Gatsbyan party. Everyone wants to be there. It's really exciting. And once you get in, nobody asks you whether or not you belong there. That's just not a thing that happens. It's you get in and you're in. Uh, so the secret is figuring out how to get in. And you can wait at the door and have them check your credentials and say yes or no. Or you can sneak in the back uh, and find some way in. There's a um, uh, Somebody has, uh, another writer phrased it as... Um, uh, breaking into Hollywood is like breaking out of jail. Once once mm-hmm. uh, you've made a hole, somebody else follows behind, and then they plug up the hole, and you can't get through anymore. Um, and so it's very much that. It's it's your job as a writer trying to break into the industry or as a creative trying to break into the industry. Half of your job is creating that really great art that gets you in. The other half is figuring out how to get in. Some people have this, if they build it, if you build it, they will come mentality towards art where it's like I will make this brilliant thing and then everyone will show up and want it and that's not necessarily the case you have to figure out how to get that thing in front of the right people at the right time and not enough people spend the energy trying to figure that part out Um, because you you, nobody just really just shows up and is handed a career you have to fight for it every step of the way Um, and uh, uh, and so thinking about how to do that is central to starting off your career and not enough people do that. Can I ask you, you have um, this incredible breadth of work, but you do collaborate with Scott Derrickson, the director and the actor Ethan Hawke on quite a few projects, uh, including obviously the Sinister series and Black Phone and you're working on a sequel to Black Phone. Um, I've always been curious, why is it that certain actors, directors, writers, feel comfortable enough to literally like bank their careers in this safe space together and making art because you've clearly found a synergy with these people. What is it about Ethan Hawke and Scott Derrickson that you think that brings you all together in this way that creates success? Well, I mean, it's both with, it's different, very different with both of them. But the thing is, is that Hollywood is entire making movies is entirely about collaboration. Uh, it's very weird. I have these night and day uh, uh, careers, so I, you know, I've got my publishing career and I've got my movie making career. Um, I even have a side hustle as a podcasting career, which isn't really part of my career. It's just me talking about movies with one of my best friends who blocks me um, on Twitter, by the way, because I clicked on him and I can't figure out why. Because I, I think I've been on that podcast and I was like, why am I blocked? <laughs> <laughs> so please tell him to unblock oh, no. me. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna have to check. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I have no idea. But yeah, so, um, uh, but in publishing, it's very much like you're the person who writes, you send it to your editor, your editor sends you back a list of edits and goes, now, this is your book, so you make the choices, but here's what we think. And Hollywood is the night and day of that. Everybody gets their hands dirty. Everyone has an opinion. Uh, you will have actors that will come up to you and go, I'm having problems with the script and I think you need to rewrite it. Um, you know, everybody gets there, uh, 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 gets into it and you have to know that going in. You cannot go into filmmaking being like, I am going to be the full arbiter. It is going to be my voice. I am, I am the full author of this, uh, because you never are. There's, there's so many people that are involved in that creative process. So when you find people that you can really jive with and get really great material, 
uh, with and that you can do stuff that you're really proud of, uh, you keep working with those people. You know, we joke around um, we joke around uh, on set that Ethan, we call him two take hawk. Uh, because he comes in, he walks on set, he does the scene, and then we do one more for safety, and then we can move on. Uh, because he just nails it right at the beginning. He, he knows what what you know what you're getting as soon as he walks on. Not all actors are like that. You'll work with actors where it takes five or six takes before you get that magic that you know that that, that Oscar winner is known for. That they got to get their engine revving, and then once they hit it, they keep hitting it. But you it. You know, it takes a while. Sometimes you don't want to work with an actor on that, especially on a lower budget movie where time is going to be of the essence. Uh, and so, you know, Ethan is just one of those great magical blue collar actors who he comes to work with three different versions of how he can do every particular scene. He's got it all memorized. He's ready to go. Um, and so you, you get in, you talk about the scene, and then you're shooting. Uh, and so we love working with him. He also is an actor that likes to take risks. Uh, you know, when he made Sinister, he'd never made a horror movie before. And then all of a sudden, you know, blew up in the horror scene. And before mm-hmm. Black Phone, he didn't play a villain before. And now he's played villain two more times in other, in, in other shows and movies, uh, because he enjoyed it so much. Um, so, so having an actor that gets out of his comfort zone and, and, uh, uh, works the way he does always go back to that person. If you have a chance, you know, uh, uh, and then of course, Scott, me and Scott are best friends. You know, we, uh, uh, we just, uh, we're, we're two people who can sit around for four hours and smoke cigars and talk and feel like it was 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we also come from very different creative mindsets. Um, so we approach the same material that we love from two different angles. And as a result, we're always pushing and pulling at each other and getting work that's better if we had done it on our own. And, uh, so it's, it's always great to have somebody make you look better and smarter. You have had so much success in the horror space. And, you know, the first time I saw Sinister, it literally gave me nightmares. And for people who haven't seen it, it's a very, it's a very dark, scary movie, as is Black Phone. Um, you were, wh- by the way, if, if, if you recall, what you haven't mentioned is uh, you were me and Jess's plus one to the premiere of Sinister. You I, were at the world premiere. I actually said that at the beginning of the podcast, just FYI. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, and that was when I actually got to meet Ethan Hawke, which I, he really lives up to his reputation. He's a very, very nice man. And I'm not just saying oh, yes. that because you're sitting in front of me. I mean, like, yeah. lovely. And I've met a lot of actors who are not, but whatever. <laughs> Going back to the other reason, why do you keep working with the same people over and over again? Because when they're not jerks, it makes the it's, day go faster. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, but I want to know why you think you're drawn, like, to this dark space. Again, like, horror movies. I mean, you know how much I love horror movies. And they're a cornerstone of American culture, of American art. And the ones that you have created in particular, I mean, they're just huge. I mean, Black Fun is is a wild success. Why do you think that you are comfortable and successful in this space? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that um, horror, when horror is its own subgenre, but it's also a subgenre that can blend with every other genre. You can take, you know, you can, make horror comedies you can make horror romances you can make horror art films uh you really have a lot to play around with there um and you can do a lot of things in horror that you can get an audience to pay for that you can't necessarily do in other straight genres um and uh and so 
it allows you to play around, flex all your your creative muscles. You know, tell really great stories, draw, create really great characters. You know, create complicated situations with deep themes, all while getting people to jump and throw their popcorn in the air. You know, Sinister at its heart. Yeah, it's about, you know, it's a monster movie about a monster that is tricking kids into, you know, seducing kids into killing their families. But the majority of what that movie is, is an indie drama uh, about a writer struggling to uh, uh, find his next book, falling upon a mystery and putting his family in danger uh, doing so. There's all these complicated things going on with the family through the film. And if you made that without the ghosts and the spooks... It make two million dollars on the weekend and then end up on Netflix. Uh-huh. But you have you you put in the jumps and the ghouls and the goblins, and all of a sudden you have a movie that opened eighteen million dollars its opening weekend that we made for three million dollars. Um, you really get to you know you look at some of what's considered the best horror movies of the last ten years, and you're talking about films that you could easily call cinema. You know, you're talking about, you know, movies like Nope and Get Out and The Witch and The Babadook and, you know, these movies that incredible. have a lot to say and are very artistic in a way that, you know, you can't be with a comedy. And so playing in the horror sphere a, really gives you a really big toolbox to tell any kind of story you're feeling like you want to tell while also um, having a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, getting to do gnarly things with the lawnmowers. You know, I I have I read an article a long time ago, and I apologize, I can't remember where, but it was talking about how horror movies do particularly well in American culture in times of tension, strife, uh, you know, chaos, and that a lot of the horror movies that are popular are actually reflections of things going on in cultures, like slasher movies mm-hmm. were big in the 80s. I'm sure you know much more about this than I do. I guess torture porn was uh, a re, re, uh, reflection of Iraq, uh, the Iraq War, and 9-11. Oh, yeah. um, right now, do you think horror movies are so popular because everything's so fucked up? Well, yeah, and and the thing is, is the the question of, of how fucked up is everything is you know a product of a thousand different podcasts. But the the thing is, is that we are plugged in more than we've ever been before, and we're exposed to more darkness and horror every day uh, that we may have not been aware of previously. And as a result, yeah, there's a big draw to uh, to horror and scares and catharsis. Um, to get that, you know, uh, to essentially one of the things about horror movies is horror movies take our fears and give them physical form uh, so you can punch them in the face mm-hmm. and so that you can, you know, confront them. Um, you, you know, even even the most esoteric horror films are about existential dread, uh, you know, things that we deal with in any div- given day. And and a horror movie is that chance to go and viscerally experience that and jump and have those physical reactions and then have fun with those feelings um, and getting this relief of catharsis and safety at the end. And that's one of the big things is that you feel safe at the end of a horror movie generally. A, a really scary horror movie will will follow you out to the car. Mm-hmm. That's that's when you know you kind of hit it. Um, one of the greatest compliments I ever got was a horror d- director I know. Uh, she went to uh, see – she was she was there that night uh, that we saw Sinister – uh, the the first showing, and she went home, and none of the lights in her house were on, and she didn't want to go inside. Nah. And that's where you know you really yes, you, yes, you, you did it. But um, 
but yeah, it it really it's during those times. I mean, the thing is, is horror always does well. But yeah, during times of strife, during times of of conflict, when people are really um, uh, just on edge, uh, horror movies do very well. And and we saw that back in twenty twenty two. Um, when we had so much great horror. I mean, you see it this year, you know, and in 2023, even though it was not as good a year as 22 in terms of the volume of great horror, what was there did very well. And, uh, um, you know, we had one screenwriter who had two number one, uh, openings last year, uh, which is something I had never seen before. Who is that? Uh, a Kella Cooper. She wrote uh, Megan and the Nun too. Megan, um, so and good. Took no- yeah, took number uh-huh. one both times. Uh huh. Um, and so uh, it was. Uh, uh, it, it's great to see stuff like that. It's it's great to be in a genre when it's really popping with the mainstream audiences, and you get you know the the L.A. Times calling up going, "What's going on with horror right now?" Like everybody seems to be talking about it. Can you know? Uh, it's it's great to be in those periods as opposed to like what's happening in the superhero world right now where everybody's kind of like, yeah, we're done with superhero movies now. And if what you do for a living is make superhero movies, now is the now is the time where you polish up your CV and, and uh, uh, maybe branch out into a couple other uh, genres. Uh, but yeah, it's it's doing very well. Well, I want to get into the superhero decline in one second, but I want to say... One of the things when my dad, my dad died of brain cancer, as you know, and everyone knows. Um, and when he died, I went to grief counseling and like some of it worked, but I'm just not a great therapy person in general. I get bored easily, whatever. And I had a friend tell me to watch The Babadook, which is a horror movie, which I'm not going to give it away. It's really one of the greatest horror movies ever made because he told me that it was a metaphor for dealing with grief and how you live with it. And -hmm. like the premise of the movie is people finding a demon in their basement that they can't figure out how to get rid of. And literally that horror movie did more for me for therapy. I'm not going to give away the ending, but the ending is how you deal with grief. And it is a genius perfect horror movie that has literally helped me emotionally and psychologically in so many ways. And that's why I think horror movies are so important as well is because it really can be this lens into just the ultimate darkness in the world and how we ultimately cope with it. So I just I yeah. wanted to share that with you. Why was yeah, the Babadook I mean, like, such a sleeper hit from the side? Because it really was this movie that just like exploded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it, it, it's it's the perfect example of a cult film. You know, it hit with the critics. Uh, it didn't quite hit with audiences the way it wanted to, uh, but people wouldn't shut up about it. And they're like, you got to watch this movie. And so as a result, it it bled out and people saw it and then it became a meme. And uh, and now it's one of those those films. Horror ages better than anything else. So you can have a film that fails as a horror movie and 10 years later is considered to be a classic. And that's what happened with the Babadook is the Babadook is one of those that, you know, we were like, we don't understand why people don't like it, but people kept mentioning it and mentioning it. And now it's considered one of the most important horror films of the last decade. Uh, but yeah, it's that movie is very much if you took all the horror elements out of that movie, it would make a great art film, but nobody would see it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and that's what's kind of great about horror is you can make a film that is about how do you deal with grief? How does that, what does that do to the family? Uh, you know, watching a mother kind of, you know, unravel. And is she going to be driven to murder her child? Like that is, you know, uh, you, you get to play around with really deep, heavy stuff. Um, while also getting people to pay to see it in theaters. Cause I say the Babadook didn't do, do great, but when you look at it, it does, did better than indie films of that era. 
Sure. Um, you know, it just didn't do well for, you know, compared to The Conjuring, which came out around the same time. It's so. one of my favorite movies ever. And I think because I have this like weird emotional connection to it. Um, I do. You brought up superhero movies not doing well. Um, I look, you've known me 15 years. Mm-hmm. I love movies. I really do. I'm worried recently I'm losing my appetite for film because I when I was looking back on 2023, there were so many television shows that I loved. I mean, my, this is probably not going to surprise you, but The Last of Us was my favorite thing that happened last year in, in all of anything um, that the, in television. I just loved it so much. I love a zombie apocalypse, end of the world, anything. Um, and I've been really trying to watch a lot of movies and I got in a little bit of trouble over Christmas, uh, because I don't know if you saw this. I tweeted that I really didn't like Maestro and that I felt like it was a waste of my time. And look, I have two young kids. It's hard for me to get free time in general. I just want to watch a good movie that's going to make me escape. I was bored with it. I didn't like it. It's not for me. It went everywhere for some reason. It was like on page six and all these things. There's a lot of movies that I have watched this year that people love that I do not. Are my tastes changing or like I watched May, December. I didn't love it. And again, I'm, I hope I'm not offending you as an artist and a screenwriter and a writer, <laughs> but am I? All, all, you just named all my films. Um, are those your favorite movies? No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> I mean, from the year. I was, I, was, I was joking that I had written them. Oh, uh, no, no, yes. <laughs> what, I mean, like, what, the movies that are coming out, like the new Golden Globe nominees, I, I saw a few of them. I didn't love any of them. I just saw Saltburn and Priscilla. Fine. I wasn't losing my mind over either of these movies. It was fine. What, is it me? Am I the problem? It's me. You can say if I am. Uh, well, I mean, yes and no. Um, there, there's a lot. There's a lot there that you brought up. That's actually a lot of moving pieces. Okay. Uh, but everything you mentioned. First of all, you're a genre girl. You always have been. It's part of why we're we're uh, I good friends. You you had somebody. You were like, I need somebody who can recommend science fiction and horror movies to me. <laughs> science and, fiction, horror, apocalypse. That's it. Yeah. It's really and, all I kind of love. Weirdly. Well, and and everything you just me- mentioned, this was so essentially how a lot of this ties in is um, uh, audiences are cyclical um, and we oscillate back and forth between realism and fantasy uh, and in what we desire. You know, when you when we sit down to watch a movie, here's what I want. And we go through patches in history where we are obsessed with fantasy, which is what we're just coming out of. You know, in in 2008, we went headlong into fantasy and all of a sudden superhero movies, science fiction movies, fantasy films, horror getting very supernatural, going from, you know, as you mentioned, what uh, was unfortunately titled torture porn of the mid aughts, where it was all about, you know, kind of slashers, but really grisly slashers. Then all of a sudden moving into possession movies and ghost movies. And and that became, you know, the, the, the last 15 years have been all about fantasy. And that's what dominates the box office. Now, that's not all that's been made, but when you look at the the top twenty, the top thirty, um, on you know of the year on box office, you're gonna find almost entirely fantastical films. But if you go to other portions of history, like before that, <clears throat> you end up with realism being the dominating factor. You know, in the, the in 1986, the fantasy era that we had grown up with in the 80s had died and became much more realistic films where thrillers and um, uh, uh, procedurals and action movies without fantastical elements all kind of dominant started dominating the box office. You'd have the occasional, 
genre movie pop into the top 20, but it was very rare. It was a Terminator 2 or it was a Total Recall that would come out of uh, seemingly nowhere. But everything else would be these more realistic films. And one of the those the types of those realistic films is kind of the bloated, um, uh, uh, star-driven, you know, um, uh, director-helmed uh, drama. And, you know, the Oscar bait movie, if you will, uh, is what they typically get uh, uh, pigeonholed into. And those become very popular. And that just became popular this year. Every every movie you mentioned is riddled with stars. You can't throw a stick in those movies without hitting a recognizable actor. You can name all of the directors, even if they're an up-and-coming director like Emerald, um, uh, all the way up to... You know, you you you've got Scorsese in there. You've got um, uh, uh, Ridley Scott in there. You've got you know all these these big Bradley Cooper in there. You've got all these big stars and these big directors that are making these movies that are very you know dramas. You know, when you boil it down, Oppenheimer is a three-hour movie about a guy getting security clearance and then all the things that happen along the way. When you break it down, Ferrari is a movie about. Uh, a guy figuring out whether he's going to recognize his bastard son or not. Uh, and there's race car, there's racing in between there. But those movies aren't about the big spectacle as they were for the last 15 years. These movies are more about drama again. And if that's not your personal cup of tea, you're going to be like, why is this the movie everybody's talking about? And for a lot of people, it's because they, they're just done with fantasy. And they're like, uh, thank God we're back to telling movies about normal people again. Um, and they're very excited about that fact. Uh, but y- those were never your jam. So I <laughs> am the problem. Who, it's me. <laughs> as somebody, as somebody who uh, you would turn to me in the middle of the night and be like, Cargill, what do I watch? Yes. Though none of those were movies that I would think uh, you need to see that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Is the, are people with? First of all, can I talk to you about Saltburn for a second? Which you brought up Emerald Fennel. Absolutely. Who, um. So I okay. Of all the ones that are like you know getting award nominations, I think I hated that the least. I still didn't like love love it, but I think it's because I knew so much of the plot that had been given away on social media. Um, Emerald Fennel is getting a lot of um, like backlash to her about this movie and about her in general. I guess she comes from a wealthy family in the UK. I guess that's where her name comes from. Her dad is a famous jeweler, that's why her name is Emerald. Um, as a, you know, full-blown Nepple baby myself, I don't understand the criticism that she can't make great art and great films because she has, like, famous parents. Um, do you think it's fair? Do you think some of the criticism of her and the film are fair? Or do you think it's just based in sort of, like, misogyny and, you know, backlash towards uh, Nepple I think it's, babies? I think, you know what? I think, I think it's got its feet in both, uh, both graves, if you will. Um, uh, if you've seen Saltburn. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, it, you know, because one of the things is that, you know, uh, the criticism isn't that you can't make great art if you come from a wealthy family. I think the thing here is a wealthy person coming in and um, making a let's skewer the rich movie um, feels hollow to folks. Uh, okay. You know, it's, it's just and it's one of those things where you just kind of got to shrug at it because people are very much like, well, if you're rich, you can't make fun of the rich. And it's like, why not? These are the assholes I grew up with. Uh, with her in particular, uh, you know, uh, the critics that have gone after her, I've seen, are generally familiar with the work that inspired her, and they're finding it too derivative. Uh, the issue is, like, I was having a, a, a conversation with uh, um, a British critic friend of mine who lives here in town, 
And he was going off on, well, if you've read all of these books, she's just ripping all that off. And I'm like, I've never read any of those books. Like, this was my experience with this. And and uh, uh, it, the, all the books you're talking about were very big in Britain, but not necessarily over here, except with academics. So she's tapping into something that, you know, most mainstream audiences aren't really familiar with. So I don't know that that is as much a criticism as you think it is. It's, you know... Uh, it is what it is, but uh, but yeah, I do I do think there is a bit of misogyny in there because the fact is, I only see takedowns of directors like this uh, uh, for female led films. You, mm-hmm. you don't see men who do that kind of thing. They go, oh, you know, nobody. That's not a criticism mainstream critics give to Tarantino, even though Tarantino rips off everything. The mm-hmm. thing is, is that Tarantino rips off everything, puts it back together. And slides it forward and you go, oh, that's better. I like that. That's great. You took a bunch of things that I liked and you made it amazing. Um, I I think that's what Emerald Fennel did. And uh, I thought, you know, the, the parts that I recognized, I really enjoyed. It was exactly the type of um, trashy airport uh, thriller that uh-huh. I think is absolutely uh, essential for... <laughs> unwinding it did it did something i have never seen in a film before i I had a scene that i've never experienced i was like oh well that's new talk about the graveyard Um, scene oh yes because i was like oh oh what am i watching i was like and i'm not easily shocked and i was like what is happened i'm not gonna give it away but it's a lot but but it's and its intent is to shock yeah and that's the thing is by the time you get to the end of the movie i i I think somebody put that movie best saying uh, it's a movie about a bunch of ghouls without a single redeeming person in the film, and that's the whole point. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I, but I, I, it was one of those movies that I watched and I laughed on the way out. I'm like, that's going to be divisive as hell. <laughs> anybody that digs that movie, uh, that, that's my tribe right there. Um, do you have a favorite movie of 2024? I know it's hard. Or can you give me a few favorites? I'm sorry, of 2023, and then a few disappointing ones. If if you if you were be so brave, yeah, I, I can. Um, uh, favorite of the year uh, is kind of hard. Uh, there's a twenty twenty three was not a great year for for film. It was not a great year for horror. It was definitely not a great year for superhero movies. Um, uh, it was over overall. It's one of those. In fact, it was a really bad year for pop music too. Like it, it yes. anything that's anyone who's into pop entertainment, twenty twenty three is one of those years we're not we're never really going to mention in the future unless we're talking about Barbenheimer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I would definitely say Barbie is at the top of my list of best films of the year. Uh, uh, that movie was equal parts hilarious and meaningful. Um, that that movie has layers that I I, I love dissecting. Uh, a very well put together movie. I love Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. So did Ben. Um, he watches. Oh the, my god, he saw it like three times in the theater. <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> they're, they're such a. They're, they're they're just they're wonderful. And as a comic book fan, they're they're just uh, they're they're a delight. And so yeah, I I really enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, uh, I there's a film coming out in February that is just my personal cup of uh, uh, of vodka. Um, I, uh, it's, uh, a, it's a film called She is Conan and, uh, it's, uh, it played festivals last year and I've seen it three times already. And it's, uh, it's about a woman who, uh, is in the afterlife and every 10 years, she revisits herself every 10 years to kill the woman she was to become the woman she has to be. Um, oh, wow. and she, the, the first, the first iteration of her is 
uh, a female Conan the Barbarian, and then every 10 years it changes, and it's a different actress playing her as we see her get older and older, as she's essentially wandering through her life. But the thing is, is it's shot like Barbarella on mescaline. Like, it is this insane, beautiful, crazy, uh, hour-and-a-half existential French film, and it it is so exactly for me. Um, would and, I like and it? I don't. Oh, I think you would. Okay, I, I trust I absolutely you. Think you would. Okay, because it's it's got a, it has enough of the weird genre element. I mean, it really is. It's it's all about this kind of hellhound leading this woman through her own life that she doesn't remember, and uh, effectively judging herself. And there's so many genre elements mixed in with great existential twaddle. And you get to the end of the movie, and you're like, oh, that's what it, that's what an art film is supposed to be. Like it's it's you feel fulfilled. It, it, you feel like everything was there for a reason. Just really good. And that comes out in February. And uh, I was a big fan of that one. That's my favorite film that I saw last year. Uh, okay. It's the one that I've had people. Uh, I I had them send me a screener, and I've had people over in the backyard, and we've sat and watched it. And people are like, how is no one? T- how did nobody see that at, on the festival circuit? Uh, that's really great. Uh, I really like the horror movie Talk to Me. Uh, that was, okay. that was really good. Um, quite enjoyed that. Um, you know, disappointment wise that my biggest disappointment has been the big bombastic, uh, uh, biopics. I thought I was going to be excited to see those come back, but like I got done with Oppenheimer and I was like, this is good, but mm-hmm. it's not best of the year. And I'm shocked by the people who think it's best of the year. Um, you know, as the, the thing that bummed me about Oppenheimer was it's a three hour movie about a genius. They never show him being a genius. They just, people keep telling him he's a genius. And as a storyteller, I'm sitting there like, no, 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 I, I understand he, he built the atomic bomb, but can you show him be cool at some point? Like being mm-hmm. the smartest guy in the room, uh, instead of having everyone tell him he's the smartest guy in the room. And then I kind of felt that same way about Ferrari. Um, uh, it was good, but you know, not great. Like there's, I feel like there were some missing components uh, to that. I, I guess my biggest problem with uh, Ferrari is that uh, Michael Mann comes from an era where he Ferrari was a huge guy and a, a titan, so he doesn't feel he needs to explain Ferrari to anybody. But anybody that didn't grow up in that era and knows some of the niche stuff doesn't really have a connection with him because we're not given, we're supposed to already like him. And so it was, uh, it was not as fun a watch for me, uh, but they were both good. But that, that, that was kind of the disappointments is there, there were a couple movies that should have been like great movies that I just kind of felt, uh, you know, did you like um, Maestro? I still haven't seen Maestro. So okay. I, I have no opinion on Maestro yet. So um, did you see um, past lives? No, that's on my short list for this week. Uh, I'm, I'm still crawling through screeners and some of the, the recent stuff. Oh, one of the other best of the years, um, uh, American Fiction. If you've not seen this yet, Megan, that's a great one. Um, uh, I keep reading It's Incredible. And it's sort of like a movie about making poking fun of sort of like um, black writers being forced to write things for white audiences that are innately racist. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, that's the that's the overarching theme. And what's really interesting is its its thesis that it never beats you over the head with. It's just kind of ever present. Is that um, he, it's it's about a family who's you know going through a, a family crisis at the moment while this guy is going through this crisis of conscience with with writing, uh, but they're a fully assimilated black family that has done everything that they were told they were supposed to do and they still can't get real equality. Mm -hmm. And here's this guy who 
really just wants to publish these great esoteric literary works. And everybody's like, no, 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 it's not black enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he's for he he writes something satirically and then it is so he can send it off and be like, fuck you. This is this is this is not who I am. And they love it. And <laughs> it's the here's wait, here's a box of money. And he's like, wait, no, but but this box of money would solve all my problems. But now I'm selling myself out. And and it's a and, and it's acerbically funny. It's it's uh, Jeffrey Wright is just so delightful in the movie. Um, it's, he's an incredible yeah, it's actor. I like everything he's in. I really do. Yep. Um, well, it was re- it was really interesting. We got both uh, Jeff- uh, a Jeffrey Wright indie film, and then you get to turn around on Disney Plus and have Jeffrey Wright as the Watcher in the the yeah. Marvel What If series, and you get you get all the Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, he's an incredible actor. Uh, I know uh, you know you're incredibly busy, and you're working on your books as well as your screenplays. Um, when, how do you figure out what's worth your time? Because you really, you know, you're writing all the time. You're saying, I just asked you offline before we started recording, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm in writing mode right now. Um, I never really understand how you're capable of doing as much work as you are. How do you choose your projects now? Um, based on uh, uh, based on the reality of them getting made, for one, uh, is one thing. Um, you know, we get Scott and I get offered a lot of projects that we just pass on because we're like that. That movie's going to be in development hell forever. It's never, it's never getting made. That's that's an insane uh, concept. Um, also, uh, if we choose based on um, if we have anything to say uh, in that field, there've been a couple of big prominent um, franchises that have come our way over the last few years that we've just turned down uh, because we were like, we don't. We could make a movie in that universe, but we don't have anything we want to do in that universe. And so, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, just pure desire of, you know, I'm working on a, I've got two paid projects that I'm working on at the moment, um, uh, that, you know, we're developing while contracts are going through and the like. Uh, but, uh, I also have this third script that I'm writing on the side in my free time that I'm writing, uh, for a friend to direct because, uh, it's, it's something that I've always wanted. It's a story I've always wanted to tell. It's something I've always wanted to do. It's something I've always wanted to see and nobody's done. And I found a director who's been looking for just that script. And I found a producer who's like, I will put in the money myself if I have to, to get this made. And so it's like, you know, that's, that's worth my time. If I've got other creatives who are really excited about this project, then I'll put some uh, put my personal time into it to to make this passion project. Uh, so it's always about those. It's it's just the, I, what I don't want to do right now is you know I'm at that point in my career where I could easily just take the paychecks and uh, work on six scripts a year, and mm-hmm. maybe one of them gets made, maybe they don't. But uh, I could be swimming in dough instead. I'm kind of like you know let me. Let me do this smaller uh, horror film. Let me do this thing that that is not as big money, but that I know will absolutely get made and that I will be on set and we will shoot it and I will have another finished product. Because where I am right now, uh, I've worked on 32 films or projects, rather, 32 projects for Hollywood professionally. Um, And to date, I've only seen six come out. Uh, That's wild. It's a really good batting average, considering when you're in the industry, people are like, oh, wow, that's pretty good. Um, But it's you you do reach that point where you're like, I kind of really want to work on stuff that comes out 
uh, not sure. just have a pile of scripts in my drawer that I was like, oh, that would have made a really good movie, but it was just the wrong time or we had the wrong actor attached or what have you. Uh, so that's that's where I'm choosing these days is is going after the stuff that I, that that seems realistic. Do you have a dream job, a dream story? Is there like you know sort of this white whale of anything that you've wanted wanted to do in in any way or like a topic or a person? Uh, I mean, the, the the one that I'm working on right now, because um, apart from that, I've already done a lot of that. Uh, you know. Um, I guess the the one thing that I would love to do that I've you know might get the chance you know considering where like we what we were just talking about with fantasy and realism uh, for over twenty years I've wanted to do a story on the Battle of Atu, um, which is a uh, which is a not so famous uh, battle in World War Two um, you know that that defies common wisdom the the whole thing is that the uh, um, you know, we were actually invaded and American soil was taken in World War II. Uh, we often think it never happened, but the Japanese captured several islands in the Aleutian Islands. Uh, and one of those was Atu. And the result was a really crazy, insane late night battle um, that uh, uh, that decided the, the Japanese section of that war. And it's just a, the entire story is phenomenally crazy and unlike any World War II story anyone's ever told. And that would be one that I've, that I've just had there in my back pocket for years. Like, I'd love to tell that story. That would be great. I've never heard of that. So I would love to see mm-hmm. that, a film on that as well. And I'm an educated person. So there you go. Um, Cargo, uh, I, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience right now just about uh, the future of movies and entertainment going forward in 2024? Um, is there anything like the world is so chaotic and such a mess in so many different ways? But I feel like one of the things that still brings people together is filmmaking and storytelling is there anything um you feel hopeful about going into 2024 yeah yeah so the 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 bad news first is because of the strikes last year um so many movies got pushed back um and they uh uh they weren't able to finish shooting there's movies that shot three weeks there's there's a few movies that actually just got scuttled that they're like we're never going to be able to come back and finish this movie uh but you know they're there are other movies that I'm hoping don't rush into production and finish to get out by summer because that's what happened in 2008 and that's how we got some really notoriously terrible movies um, was they were just rushed into production. The good news is that all these dates opened up and um, Sundance really uh, this year got um, 17,000 submissions. Uh, of films of which 4,400 were features. So, um, they could only choose 86 films. They chose 86 films, but my, my thinking of it is, you know, if half of those films that Sundance chose out of 4,400 features are bangers, Mm -hmm. that's a great new indie movie every week for the next year. Um, you know, this is, there's a bunch of people that worked on stuff during the pandemic. They, they tightened things up. They, you know, they, they, they waited to, to, until Hollywood was back so that they, you know, didn't end up dead. And as a result, you got way too many movies. Like there's, there's a lot of films that are going to, you know, 
vanish as a result of how many there are. But what that means is we may have a number of new indie voices coming out in the next year of just exciting films from people you've never heard of or people who weren't, you know, given the right chance in the past and that they, they tweak this and have this great film. We could go back to a 90s era kind of boom of really cool, weird new voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's very exciting. Um, when I saw the sheer numbers on that, you know, it's just like even if only 10 of those 4,400 are great, that's 10 great indie films we could be seeing this year. And that's that always excites me. So that's that's really great. And the other big thing is that Hollywood always pivots. Hollywood, you know, the big the big thing that gets left out of the conversation is that um, Hollywood does not dictate what we watch. We dictate what we watch, mm-hmm. and it's audiences. What audiences will pay for? What audiences will stream in the in the opening weekends before you know um, uh, the decision has been made on things? Uh, that's what drives media. And if you love film, if you love, if you're one of those people that has sat around saying all Hollywood makes is you know remakes and horror films and superhero movies, it's not true. Uh, the 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 theaters are full of great films. You just are waiting to hear your friends talk about. If you want to see good new stuff, if you want something that's different, if anytime you see something out there that is that thing. Uh, that is, that is adjacent to something you love, just blind watch it. Take friends. If you love an indie film, go and buy a bunch of tickets and take your friends the next weekend. You know, uh, show Hollywood this is the stuff you want, and this is the year we can really do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, and Hollywood is constantly taking this data. They're going to take everything they learned from 2023 and said, well, this didn't work, and this didn't work, and I guess we're not doing these kind of movies anymore for a while. Uh, and then they go, well, let's try something else. And if that something else is what you love, jump into it and go after it because you get to shape Hollywood. Hollywood doesn't shape itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that gets left out of the conversation too much. So uh, this is a great year to go and support indie films if you love indie films because there's going to be a lot of them. Uh, that's uh, I, I'm very hopeful. Um, that that we're going to see an era that what we're doing is we're kind of being like, okay, that's all done. We did all the superhero stuff. We did all the bombastic stuff. Uh, let's let's make some weird art um, mm-hmm. because I love weird art. I love weird art too. When you were saying uh, the 90s were like a great time, uh, I always think of the Blair Witch Project because it's the first movie that scared the living shit out of me and like made me cry in the movie theater. So yeah, that's a throwback. Yeah, 99, for... But like the indie boom of the 90s, that's what gave us Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and Richard Linklater and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. and just all these great voices came out of these weird beard little indie films because people had gotten tired of watching Big Spectacle and were like, I, I want to see something new. I want to see something different. And you get Pulp Fiction and Boogie Nights and, you know, these these crazy good grounded movies, uh, Dazed and Confused. Um, and Dazed I'm and hoping confused. that's what we start getting again. Well, I just want to thank you again, Cargill, for taking time to talk to me on my podcast, on my new podcast, for being my friend for so long. And I just want to congratulate you on all your wild success everywhere. You can follow Cargill on Twitter at Massawarm, M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M, and on Instagram. If you even, you're not really a tweet excerpt person anymore and not really an Instagram person. No, I'm over on Blue Sky. What is Blue Sky? And I need to get on it. What is that? Oh, you do. Oh, oh my God. I'll get you. I don't know what this is. You should have told me. What is it? Oh, it's uh, Jack, the guy who started Twitter, moved over and is create creating a new protocol, uh, Blue Sky, and it's uh, 
it is very much a uh, there's. Is it like Twitter when it started? Because that's my vibe. Okay, I'm... No, no, no. It feels exactly like I, I've been thinking about you regularly because it, it feels like that. Like back in the day, like, you know, when we first became friends, how we became friends was you would come home from these terrible dates. Terrible. And you'd be like, oh, my God, is you'd hop on Twitter and go, Any, is anybody up? I need to talk about this terrible date I just had. I did. And I'd be I'd raise my hand and it'd be <laughs> two in the morning Texas time and be like, I am. And then we would talk <laughs> about your dating life. And, and Cargill, uh, who doesn't know anything about that because he's been married to a beautiful angel for 70 years so and you met her when you were really young and you have a wonderful we, we marriage. literally uh we next week we celebrate our 29th anniversary of being shut together. up cargill that's so long that's so crazy she's a beautiful angel I, perfect and, and we're not that old it's just that no we're, you're we're not teenagers and fell in love a few years older than me that's amazing congratulations what are you guys gonna do congratulations uh what we're gonna go out and have a really nice dinner and uh uh that's pretty right much, on. you know, we're going to save the big thing for 30 years. That's where we're going to be yeah. like, all right, it's, we, we met 30 years ago. We got to do something. Big. Well, I was actually thinking you're going to have a big birthday coming up in two years. Oh, yeah. And then yep. I want to know what you're going to do for that. I'm not going to say your age on the show. It's I fine. will I will figure that out as well. I have not quite <laughs> laid down what I am going to do for the big five zero, but uh, uh, I'll do something. It'll well, probably be a lost weekend in the middle of nowhere with a lot of really great scotch. <laughs> yes. Well, Cargill, thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there anything else you want to plug before we say goodbye? Uh, no. Uh, it, if you uh, if you dig horror films and want to see what's up, uh, I've got uh, uh, VHS 85 is streaming on Shutter. Uh, I believe you can also rent it separately. Me and Scott had a, uh, uh, a short in there called Dream Kill. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, I was in an anthology with a bunch of friends. Over the course of the pandemic, there were... Uh, a bunch of horror filmmakers that were really kind of just stir crazy and we all started hanging out on Thursday nights and now we have this collection of over 100 horror filmmakers that come and go from this weekly Zoom and a bunch of us decided to put together a book and just write some short stories together. It's called Haunted Reels and it's I, I think 32 of us uh, submitted uh, uh, short stories and the short stories are great. A uh, bunch of good people. Uh, if you want to Find some new indie voices that you haven't heard from. There's those in there. There's also some bigger horror filmmakers. Um, and it's, uh, uh, and I really like the story I wrote for it. So you can find that wherever you buy your books. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken Cargill. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to our guests, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Emily Eakins, and of course, my friend, C. Robert Cargill. It's been a wonderful first episode back, and I look forward to many, many, many more in 2024. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Megan McCain Has Entered the Chat, brought to you by Teton Ridge. I am your host and executive producer, Megan McCain. Additional executive producers are Miranda Wilkins, Eric Spiegelman, and Wynn Weigel. Our supervising producer is Olivia DiCopolis. Our senior guest producer is Kara Kaplan and associate producer Austin Goodman.